Welcome to Midrats with Sal from Commander Salamander and Eagle One from Eagle Speak at Sea or Shore, your home for a discussion of national security issues and all things maritime. And welcome aboard, everybody. I am the aforementioned Sal, along with my co-host Eagle One from Eagle Speak. We appreciate, as always, y'all taking time today to join us and extend want to extend our invitation to that cohort who is with us live. If you scroll down to the bottom of the show page, that's where you will find the chat room. We'll be monitoring that during the course of the show. It's a great place. If you have some observations you'd like to share or even a question during the course of the next hour you would like for us to address to our guest, that is the perfect place to do it. And if you've got to run off and uh, take care of life uh, before the end of the show and you want to catch up on what you missed or you want to listen to previous shows, remember you can always go over to iTunes, Spreaker, Spotify, whichever podcast aggregator you get. Subscribe to the podcast, and MidRaps will be waiting for you at a time better to your convenience. And today, one thing we're going to look about is we're going back to the Russia-Ukrainian war. And there's still a lot of fighting as the 72-hour war goes into its ninth, almost tenth month. And there are lessons that are already starting to come out and have started to come out for a while. And we're going to focus on a couple of those today, specifically, especially before the war and still going, of all the domains that we talk about in in warfare, one of the most hyped of the last few decades has been what is generally referred to as cyber. Its growth and interest and buzz has kind of paralleled the decline and neglect of a more traditional form that we'll touch on in here, that um, many people are more familiar with, electronic warfare. And today we're going to take a dive into what we have seen so far about cyber in the Russia-Ukrainian war and also cyber warfare in general and some trends, what we would expect, what we wouldn't expect, with our guest, Shashank Joshi. He is the defense editor at The Economist. Shashank, welcome to Midraps. Hello, both. Thank you very much for having me. I'm very pleased to be on. And uh, I guess kind of to kick things off, uh, it's uh, <laughs> it's have to be one heck of a year to be the defense editor at The Economist. So con- congratulations on your gainful employment as we look at <laughs> the um, the largest land war in Europe in our lifetime. And One of the interesting things I think our our listeners might be interested in, because most of them are very familiar, if not our subscribers to The Economist, is uh, unlike a lot of magazines, there are no bylines. There's a very collaborative effort in the magazine that has a very, very long history and has a very, very good reputation. A lot of it derives from that. And I just thought I'd give you an opportunity to talk about, as the defense editor and with the the team of reporters that you have at The Economist, uh, how have you all looked at reporting the Russo-Ukrainian war uh, to this point? And uh, have you all had to adjust 
or do new things? Or how does that process work compared to January of 2022? Well, you know, I, last year I was exhausted by the autumn after covering Afghanistan, the fall of Kabul, all of that stuff that you know you, you're, you're more than familiar with. And I, I thought, you know, wow, 2022 is going to be a lot easier than this. Um, and then by Christmas of that year, I realized, hang on a minute, this is, you know, something's up. And we could see the Russian army massing on the Ukraine border. We could see these sham talks that the Russians were holding with the United States and with NATO um, in, in January. And of course, you know, we then saw the, saw the invasion coming um, uh, 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 very fast. But you're right, it is, it is a fascinating period to be covering it for The Economist. You know, we are very collaborative. We don't have bylines, as you say, so you can't tell who wrote what. But it very often is a team effort. So if you take the latest cover story we've published, it's based around interviews with President Zelensky, um, General Valery Zaluzhny, the commander in chief of the Ukrainian armed forces, and General Alexander Sersky, who's a commander of ground forces in Ukraine. And those interviews were conducted in, in Kiev and in eastern Ukraine by my colleagues, uh, Arkady Ostrovsky, who's our Russia editor, um, Oliver Carroll, who is our um, Ukraine correspondent. And I wrote them up into a briefing. But it's a fantastic team. We've had a brilliant team over the past year. You know, I, I cover military stuff. Arkady knows Russia. He knows Ukraine. Oliver Carroll is in Ukraine going to the front lines. And we each have different skills. We each understand different elements of the conflict. Arkady understands Russia. He understands Russian culture, Russian politics. I, you know, can tell him more about T-72s and battalion tactical groups and the organizing structure of the Russian armed forces. But it really is only by combining those things we have been able to make any sense of the last 10 months. You know, we'll, we'll have phrases, a Ukrainian general will use the phrase, uh, uh, you know, fire control in Ukrainian. And we'll have a long debate inside the magazine about how should we translate that? How should we explain that to readers? How do we get this across? So, yeah, that, that combination of skill sets, of backgrounds, of approaches, my understanding of defense, my colleagues' understanding of, of Ukraine and Russia, um, of Eastern Europe, these are completely you know, indispensable complementary skills that we've been able to bring to bear in the past 10 months. Well, the, uh, the Russians have been involved with Ukraine, really, since they invaded uh, Crimea. Uh, did, did the... Was this, was the surge that they made to move into the other areas much of a surprise, really? And of of that move, uh, we've talked about uh, cyber cyber warfare. Can you talk a little bit about what the Russians initially did with the in, in the cyber front? Uh, absolutely. Well, first of all, um, you know, we should look back a little bit and say that I think it became clear that the Russians were going to plan something big by the autumn of last year. So, you know, by this time last year, I think we were pretty far in. If you cast your mind back, um, Bill Burns, the director of the CIA, was sent to Moscow at the beginning of November, November 2021. By that point, the Americans, your, your government had the plans. They had the war plans. Um, but even before that, I think in October, President Biden was briefed by the intelligence community because it became apparent these plans were real. And they weren't just military plans. They were intelligence plans. And that's partly what gave them um, credibility and substance, because we could see the FSB, the Russian, one of the Russian intelligence services, one of the successors to the KGB, planning for a puppet regime in Ukraine. We could see them planning for lists of dissidents to arrest or execute in Ukraine. We could see them planning 
um, cooperation with collaborators inside Ukrainian cities. So, you know, by by the autumn, it was it was clear that an invasion was happening. Um, you know, and and by January or so, I was personally convinced. It, not only was it going to happen, but that it was going to be big. It wasn't just going to be an attack, a renewed attack on Donbass, which the Russians, as you say, had already invaded back in 2014, but that it was going to be an attempt at regime change, including an assault on the capital, Kiev. So the biggest war in Europe since 1945. Now, you asked about the cyber question. Um, you know, this was one of the most important things to understand is the Russians thought this was going to be quick and easy, and that shaped their military plans, but it also shaped their cyber plans. And perhaps we can get into that in a bit more detail in a minute. But since you asked what they did, basically it was two things. It was some fairly crude cyber attacks uh, in the form of denial of service attacks, which are essentially bombarding websites with data. It was um, you know, some basic wiper attacks, which wiped data off devices um, in January and again, 24 hours before the invasion started on February 24th. And then the really significant action came on the day of invasion, the morning of invasion, in fact, one hour before the tanks rolled in on February 24th. And that was a very sub uh, substantial and relatively sophisticated cyber attack that basically brought down the modems that, that were used by the satellite communications of a company called Viasat, uh, a firm on which the Ukrainian government and the Ukrainian armed forces relied. Um, and so that was the big set piece cyber attack that the Russians um, launched on day one. You know, you could call it sort of T minus one hour, I suppose, of the invasion. That's one of the uh, interesting points that had me thinking from the uh, I mentioned in the pre-show that the December 3rd edition of The Economist on the digital front is, in a lot of ways, that the, you could see you know, the Russians plan for that, you know, whatever all politicians like to see, a real fast, quick war, which in the way cyber has developed, it quick strike, takes a long time to plan, you try to have a big effect, and... One of the things he all said, which is really interesting, especially when you consider how poor and, and relatively small their budget war is, he stated, quote, uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine is the first time two mature cyber powers have fought each other over computer networks in wartime. The result is a lesson in the limits of cyber power and the importance of having a sound defense, unquote. And there's a couple things about defense, especially I want to talk about later, but there, there was an expectation, I think, that cyber would have been a really big player, would, would keep going on. But it does really seem that uh, we have reached a point and you know, Ukraine, like Estonia and Georgia, uh, had to get smart because of previous experience they had with the Russian hackers. But cyber really is something that has a hard time to sustain effects in a long war. I think that's exactly right. You know, I think there's, if you look at the outcome, the output of the Russian cyber campaign and the effects it had, the effects it, it, it succeeded in, in causing in Ukraine, why were they less than expected or less than we might have thought? And it's basically three things. And you, you've, you've kind of alluded to some of them. Number one is that there were limitations in the Russian cyber campaign. It's, it's, it's also clearly... The, the fact that the cyber domain is perhaps more sticky and frictionful and foggy, to you know, allude to Cloudswitz, 
than we sometimes think. And and my favorite example of this, while writing the piece that I wrote for the Economist back at the uh, very end of last month, was the idea that you know, and, and I hope by the way we come back to the question of Russian limitations and and Ukrainian defensive prowess. But just to continue on the theme of this, the difficulty of the cyber domain and the persistence of these effects. Um, you know, I I think that what we forget is how long these sophisticated attacks can take. People think of cyber capabilities, you know, as being weapons that you point at a target state and you press the big red button and the effects appear, you know, in the sense of being conventional missiles or something like that. And I think the, the, the proper analogy is much more akin to a special forces raid where, you know, you have to build the model of your Abitabad compound, you have to train the team, you have painstaking reconnaissance for a long time. And I think that's exactly what these Viasat-like big set-piece cyber attacks are like. If you look at the Russian attack on the Ukrainian power grid back in 2015 and 2016, which shut down the power grid mechanically via cyber means, which is one of the you know, most successful physical subversive cyber attacks of recent years, the second one of those, the, the Indestroyer malware, as, as it was called, it took about two years for the Russians to plan, according to research by Lennart Mashmeyer, who's a, who's a very good researcher of cyber issues. Um, the one before that, the 2015 one, took about, I think, maybe 18 months to plan. My numbers may be slightly off. But the point is, these are very painstaking things to prepare. And if they, if they go well or if they go wrong and then the conflict moves on, then you, you, know, you have used up your access. You have used up your reconnaissance. You then have to develop a new means of access. You have to develop a new means of attack. You have to conduct reconnaissance against a new set of targets. Maybe you have to develop new means of exploitation to, to access access the target. So yes, you're absolutely right. Cyber is a kind of is a slow means if you want to look at big destructive effects. Of course, if you want to look at lower level effects, if you're just talking about you know basic wiper attacks against Ukrainian government and military systems. Yes, of course, the Russians do lots of those. They have happened, they've been effective, they've, they've, had, they've had impact, but the overall strategic impact of those has been fairly limited. Well, I, I read somewhere that the, the Russians have, have begun to change their attacks, so they're now attacking the edge systems, the, uh, the, um, the uh, firewalls, the routers, the email servers. Uh, it, Given, I mean, is that easier because they, that those systems are already known to be hackable? Do you think, or is that is that why they would have shifted? And and is it just mostly annoyance if they just keep pounding on these on these things? I mean, they're they don't seem to be very uh, they seem to be pretty ham headed in the way that they approach some of this stuff. Well, yeah, and and I'm I'm wary of calling them ham handed because it depends what you're trying to achieve, right? If you're trying to achieve a super stealthy attack that goes unnoticed for months. You know, think think of Stuxnet and the the, the 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 sort of the most perhaps the most famous destructive cyber attack with kinetic effects of all time. The the attack on the U.S. Israeli attack on uh, Iran's nuclear machinery back in the sort of early 2010s, around 2010. You know, that was an extraordinarily sophisticated but also stealthy attack that disguised the effects it was having in order to prolong its longevity in the Iranian system and its detectability. Now, if you're the GRU, which is Russia's military intelligence service, and you're part of the sandworm hacking group that has long treated Ukraine as your kind of playground, and you're in the middle of the most important Russian war since 1945, 
do you you know do you give two hoots if you're being that stealthy or is your priority to just barrage them as much as you can i think that gets to some of this shift right when i spoke to officials what i was told was that as they ran out of the big effective attacks that they had planned for months um you know in the first month of the campaign the first week of the campaign you could say the the attacks grew more tactical and opportunistic as they hunted for other targets and then you know, what we saw in November was a report from Mandiant, which is a a, a great uh, cybersecurity firm that does threat analysis. It looks for evidence of intrusions and cyber attacks in computer networks from, you know, partner organizations, including in Ukraine. And they they published a report or they, they, they gave a, a, a conference report that explained how the GRU was, as you say, attacking these edge devices, um, routers, firewalls, email servers. And I think the point was, twofold one of them one of the points was that you could sit on these devices and you could do two things you could conduct espionage you could collect data in other words which is which is you know the GRU is an intelligence agency and that's that's one of their jobs but you could also take some of these devices down um, and you could do both of these things you know you could combine the two normally if you have access to a system and you just you, you take down the network you can no longer spy on it Whereas if you continue spying on it, you haven't taken it down. So there's a trade-off. The use of these edge devices was a way of, of, of achieving both of those things, a kind of way of, of, of I guess, have, you know, eating your cake and having it too in, in the language that those Mandiant experts used. But there's another aspect to this too, which is that going after these edge devices at that, that sort of tempo of attack was basically a way of prioritizing um, quantity over quality, right? You only have a certain number of hackers, you only have a certain amount of resources, and you can, you know, as, as the people at Mandian told me, you can spend it on a couple of exquisite special operations or 50 low-cost operations. And I think this is what people need to understand about cyber operations. You know, you know there are trade-offs. Resources matter. And sometimes you have to decide, do you want, you know, painstaking, slow, stealthy, big impact operations? Or do you kind of want quick, dirty, fast, and in wartime, and Russia is in the middle of a war, that's what the GRU has decided to prioritize. Another thing I found interesting is, is how y'all managed to outline how a lot of the things that is being done in the, in the cyber domain, it's not radical, it's not new. It, it echoes or almost replicates what have been seen at, generally speaking, traditional warfare areas. Um, for instance, as... Ukraine looked to to build its robustness in a larger sense. You know, one of the stories of this war is how um, once Ukraine realized when you know Zelensky said, "I need ammunition, not transportation," uh, that yeah. they were going to stay and fight, and they were able to hold things together. Is the West and Western aligned nations started to give more support, uh, whether it was. Um, or the former Warsaw Pact NATO nations clearing out their bunkers of their 152 millimeter uh, and other Russian caliber weapons uh, to send over to let them fight, or as y'all see in the UK, they're sending Ukrainians to get high level training in Western sources, uh, Western locations. Is Ukraine's digital infrastructure? As opposed to the Russians having the ability to easily get to their server farms, they simply migrated their servers abroad, and Ukraine has been able to rely on, uh, I think y'all quoted uh, from Microsoft's Lessons Learned report back in June, quote, 
The cyber defenses of Ukraine relies critically on a coalition of countries, companies, and NGOs, unquote. So we're seeing, you know, yes, this is a domain, but whether you're talking about 152-millimeter rounds coming over a train to help Ukraine, there's also Ukraine servers being located far away from the lines, and they're using, you know, we had a show a few weeks ago about uh, the, the cable and pipe infrastructure around the world, and IT is part of that. So is that also part of that lessons, the fact that uh, even though a nation needs to maintain its sovereign capabilities, that whether you're talking about oil, fuel, weapons, or digital capabilities, is you can't have a coalition and a global effort to support a nation. You're exactly right. Exactly right. I mean, you know, this is true in a number of ways. You highlighted the Microsoft report and private companies, both Ukrainian ones, European ones like ESET in Slovakia, American ones above all. Microsoft, you know, has has been very important. So have others have provided a lot of help. And, and, you know, for those of us who perhaps don't know as much about cyber, and this certainly, you know, I include myself in that until I wrote this piece and spoke to a bunch of people, um, you know, what cyber security firms often do is they use the sort of something called telemetry, right? Telemetry, a phrase we'd understand from kind of missiles and, and military context. They look at the traffic on government networks or on anyone's networks, and they look for signs of malware. They look for signs of stuff that shouldn't be there. Sometimes they do that at a scale that can't be done by humans, and they use artificial intelligence to do it. And they pick up little snippets of code that says, hey, not only is this malware, but this looks to be a piece of malware that is similar in structure or in in, in nature to that which we found this Chinese or this Iranian or this Russian hacking group use a year ago. So they trace hacking groups over time um, in coherent groups, which they call APTs, Advanced Persistent Threats. And Sandworm, I mentioned earlier, is one such APT. It's, a, it's, a, it's basically a name that we give to a hacking group that is widely acknowledged to be part of the GRU in Russia. Now, threat firms like that did a huge amount for Ukraine. Um, Microsoft, I think, um, if I just look up my piece, they, I think they said that, you know, they will extend tech support to Ukraine until the end of next year. And that pledge, if you if you monetize it, is worth about $400 million. So this is a, a huge amount of financial aid. You know, that's more than some European governments have given Ukraine. Um, that's the commercial side of it. And that's vital. But governments have also done a huge amount. And, you know, if I take the U.S. government, for example, there was a great piece by uh, one of my um, colleagues in the UK, um, a man called Gordon Carrera, who's a, who's a fantastic security correspondent for the BBC, and he wrote a piece about how CyberCommand, US CyberCom, um, has basically was, was present inside Ukraine in substantial numbers. I think a team of about 40 personnel from across the US armed forces, because CyberCom is, of course, a, you know, it's, it's a combatant command of the US military, um, and they engaged in something that CyberCom calls hunt forward. In other words, they were looking for Ukrainian, uh, for Russian hackers on Ukrainian networks, but they were also penetrating Russian networks to find the source of those um, intrusions. In other words, a kind of offensive defense, an active defense, you know, which you guys would recognize from a conventional military context. The UK and our agencies, GCHQ, our SIGINT agency, and the National Cybersecurity Center, which is the defensive arm of GCHQ, 
also played a role in that. So, um, you know, in other words, Western governments, Western SIGINT agencies, the five eyes above all, which is the US, UK, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, have been playing a vital role in helping Ukraine, but, but really in a variety of ways, and actually in quite aggressive, offensive ways, not just sitting back, you know, giving them advice. NATO has given access, uh, Ukraine access to their threat library, which helps them track malware. But Cybercom, the UK and others have done it in quite an aggressive, forward leaning way, which I think is going to be a, um, a, lit, a, a, a pioneering test case for how we think about collective defense in the cyber domain going forward. Yeah, that's really interesting because I, I, I had made my notes here that I should talk about the thrust and parry and the attack and counterattacks of, of how this works, but you've taken it a step further. There's a the uh, preemptive attack, if you will, that, that some of these agencies are engaging in. That's 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 pretty interesting. One of one of the questions that arises is have the, the Russians limited their attacks uh to prevent uh, intrusion into things that would impact NATO countries. I, there was a piece by Jacqueline uh, Schneider in, Schneider. in uh, Foreign Affairs, yeah, Schneider, who talked about uh, uh, a quote from Senator Warner, who said that if they, if the Russians did something that screwed up, uh, I don't know, power or something to, to Poland, that that might be a violation of uh, would it trigger Article Five of, of NATO. Uh, do you think that the Russians have, have scaled a little bit back to avoid that sort of sort of intrusion now that they've been warned about it, or before? <laughs> do they think about think that way? Yeah, yeah. I, and, and before I answer that, can I say one quick thing just about your last comment about the kind of preemption? I think that, the, in a way, the, the nature of the cyber domain challenges our preconceived notions about preemption and and strike and counter strike because, to some extent, um, you know, in order to defend. You have to, you know, you, you, you sort of, you know, you have to be in an adversary network. It's a bit more like counterintelligence. You know, if you think about traditional counterintelligence and penetrating adversary intelligence services uh, rather than conventional military preemption, which kind of is very much about seeing an attack develop and then deliberately going after it in a very discreet way. Um, the cyber domain, you know, is, is, is more of a sense of constant competition. I think the analogy to intelligence services competing in peacetime is a more apt and useful analogy, although I'm very happy to be challenged on that. Maybe, maybe I'm wrong about that. Now, just to come to your second point about the limitations, you're absolutely right. You know, and, and I think there's, there's a number of reasons they were limited. If you think about two, tw 2017, the Russians conduct a cyber attack um, in Ukraine called NotPetya, which is a kind of ran a fake ransomware attack. You know, you, we know what ransomware is, right? It's a kind of malware designed to uh, extort money from the victims. This was malware designed to look like ransomware, but actually it was just really intended to shut down the target devices. And it was very effective, but it was too effective. It spread around the world and it caused $10 billion of damage. It was probably the most destructive you know, the most costly cyber attack in history. Russians, the Russians probably learned from that and said, wow, you know, we need to be very careful what we do. Um, the Viasat attack that I mentioned at the beginning spread a little bit. It affected the modems of um, satellite communications for wind farms in Germany, but it didn't spread to the same degree. And the Russians have been careful to avoid that spillover, to avoid inadvertent escalation with NATO, because they're still afraid of that in a way I think, you know, we, we, we see in the conventional domain and in the cyber domain. 
But there's another reason for restraint, too, which I think you, 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 you referenced, which is if you think you're going to be winning this war in three days, and if anyone saw the fantastic New York Times piece published uh, the, you know, within the last 24 hours of us having this conversation, it shows you the exact schedule at which they expected minute by minute, hour by hour to reach Kiev. Um, if you think you're going to be taking over this country and occupying it and then running it with a puppet regime, why would you want to destroy its electricity grid and its, 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 its transportation hubs and its communication system? You know, you, you think you're going to be running this, so you want to protect it. And I think that, that assumption, born of profound hubris and, 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 and military war in a war optimism of a kind we see through the centuries, shaped their decision to perhaps hold back some of the most destructive cyber attacks they could have conducted. It doesn't mean those attacks would have been successful had they tried, because in April they did in fact then go for the power grid again in a piece, using a piece of malware called Indestroyer 2. In other words, the sequel to the 2016 attack. And it was parried. It was effectively, it was successfully repelled by virtue of Ukraine's uh, um, defense defenses assisted by intelligence provided by a Slovakian cybersecurity firm. So, you know, that shows you it wouldn't necessarily have worked, but the Russians may have held back out of a misguided notion that they were going to be running this place in a week. So, you know, there you are. You, 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 the hubris, hubris strikes again. Another thing that I find the parallels in the cyber domain to the traditional domains that I think is helpful to, to talk about them is standard issue, military science 101, your, your three levels. You have your tactical level, your operational level, and your strategic level. And it applies to cyber as well. And Viasat and, and Stuxnet, you know, those are definitely at their strategic level. And I think what's interesting is a lot of the, the malware that, you know, you're going after a power grid. In some ways, if you're just shutting things down or shutting down uh, equipment, that's kind of a soft kill. It doesn't destroy the equipment. It doesn't make things go boom. It doesn't make it unusable. It just makes you can't use it until you figure out a way around the ones and zeros that are between you and it. And then you have what happened to Iran with the Stuxnet, where you can have a cyber attack that does create physical damage and physical harm. And you mentioned that $10 billion figure before. And uh, the cyber domain, I think, you know, talking about it, it has flavors of intel. It has a little flavor of electronic warfare, especially the latter part, is that it operates at a different level of time and space because things work at the speed of light. And you have multi-billion dollar impacts on a global scale on a lot of nations that no, nobody ever sees. You know, if a, if a bomb hits your factory or somebody you know, cuts your bridge in half, uh, citizens, politicians, they can see it. But one of the things about these cyber attacks is unless it's something that turns your lights off or your, your gas goes away, uh, these, these ec- the economic damage. Uh, you know, one thing, the, the blitz against the UK, yeah, that's taking out the economy. Uh, carpet bombing the Ruhr Valley, that takes out an economy. But cyber has a way to reach almost immediately to do tremendous damage to economies. Uh, people talk about escalation in the Russo-Ukrainian war as it goes on longer and longer. If you squint your eyes a bit, can you see in ways 
in the cyber domain, the Russians could really escalate and have a, a big impact, but something that most people may not notice. Well, I think that you, you, you get to a very important point, which is that uh, it's linked to the fact that cyber is a domain. Um, it's not a thing. So in that domain, you can do a whole bunch of stuff, just like you can in any other domain, right? Um, we talk about the space domain. Um, you know, you, you both know a huge amount about the naval domain. Um, there's a spectrum of activity that can go on in that domain, everything from apocalyptic, you know, physically destructive, wildly evident and visible actions to um, completely non-physical cognitive influence information warfare um, that, that, you know, to intelligence gathering. All of that stuff coexists. It's not one or the other. It all happens at the same time. And if you were looking at the cyber domain, I would say that, you know, we, we fixate on the most visible attacks, you know, the, the, what we see as the equivalent of the blitz, or indeed to, to use the classic analogy that has you know, it been lodged in the um, zeitgeist since the early 1990s, the idea of a cyber Pearl Harbor, um, because that's so lodged in the American consciousness, right, for, for, for you guys. But 95% of what goes on is stuff that is a lot less dramatic. You know, it's influencing. It's 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 beaming. You know, it's perhaps sending uh, subversive propaganda messages uh, to the emails of Russian officers in Ukraine. Uh, it is changing the news in occupied areas to try and undermine the position of the Russian occupation authorities. Um, you know, it's publishing disinformation to try and demoralize Russian um, Russian officials who uh, and how they view the war. So, you know, if we don't understand that on the bit of the iceberg that's underneath we completely miss that now and, and we don't know what we don't know right because this is this stuff in in the piece that i wrote i i talked about the intelligence war in the second world war when did we learn about the uh, allied breaking of the enigma code and its effect on the naval campaigns and indeed the overall military campaigns of the second world war well you know we we, we, we kind of knew about it in dribs and drabs if you were in this world but it didn't really come to light, the, you know, the ultra secret until the 1970s. Um, I, 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 that this is, you know, 20, 20 years um, or 30 years after the end of the war. And, and the same, you know, the, the same delay may not be true in the modern age with the current information environment. But there's a lot going on we don't see. How much of it affects the economy? That's difficult to say. There are conceivable cyber actions against banks, financial institutions, um, you know, tra trade. Uh, I, I imagine there's a lot of cyber activity going on against Ukrainian ports and ports in Crimea and in Russia to track illegal shipments of grain to try and understand how these may be may be affected. You know, to to, to, to broaden out, we saw. Uh, a very effective Israeli cyber attack against an Iranian port last year that disrupted activity there. So, you know, absolutely, these kind of low-level, low-grade, stealthier attacks that we don't always see can undoubtedly have an impact on economic infrastructure and economic output. One of the surprises to me, given that the Russians have uh, had some really good systems for for uh, battlefield, we think, pretty consistent for battlefield uh, electronic warfare is how poorly they, they discipline their own people in, in, in not using cell phones and giving away their locations. Uh, yes. You know, which, I mean, what, what, what is going on with that? They just, they, they thought they were, as you say, they, they thought it was going to be a three day war and they didn't care. They didn't think the Ukrainians would fight back as hard as they did, or they just, uh, 
don't have good uh, uh, dis- net discipline, as we used to call it. I think they have shocking net discipline, shocking net discipline. And that's partly because, you know, um, I, I've never served in the military. So so here I, I freely admit to sort of talking certainly beyond my well beyond my knowledge. But if you have a, a, a force that is being well prepared for a serious conflict against a serious adversary who has, you know, good EW and SIGINT capabilities, you are going to be pretty careful, right? You're going to be careful about using cell phones. You're going to be careful about using transmissions, the nature of those transmissions, um, and so on and so forth. Whereas if you have a poorly trained force that assumes it's going to be conducting exercises in Belarus and then gets an hour's notice that it is, in fact, invading Ukraine, how, how much do you think it will be prepared in terms of operational security? You know, and, the, and the answer is clearly not very well. But what's interesting is this wasn't just low-level, you know, uh, 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 um, you know, grunts shoved into Ukraine, uh, you know, with old rifles. Once, even you know, months into the campaign, we were seeing high-ranking Russian officers, general general officers, um, inside Ukraine, congregating near transmission antennae, near comms devices, um, in headquarters that were near the front, and getting killed for it. Um, you know, right up to and including Valery Gerasimov, who visited the front and, as, as we know now, was nearly killed because of a Ukrainian attack on his on his position, um, which 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 the Americans advised against for the reasons, presumably because um, the Russians would have assumed that the NSA gave the Ukrainians the the the, the, the intelligence. Um, so so there's that aspect of it. There's absolutely poor com security, but I think there's also something else, which is that you know. The Russian EW setup was not always very smooth, and there was a lot of fratricide or the potential for fratricide, and so they could not necessarily use their own dedicated combat net radios and high-frequency radios, and they therefore resorted to using cell phones and commercial cell phones, and that that probably worsened their signature. It probably made them stick out like a sore thumb. And if there's one lesson of this conflict, it's that your battlefield signature makes a huge difference in terms of your survivability. And if you have a big signature, a lot of emissions, you're going to be found and you're going to be struck. And I think that the Russians have learned that the very, very hard way. And we even had, I believe the Ukrainians are calling the, the Chechens the TikTok warriors because they were putting up so many videos on TikTok, which... I don't know how much you have visibility of it in the UK, but in the US right now, we're up to, I think, a dozen US states have outlawed TikTok on any type of government uh, cell phone because yeah. of the, the intel concerns of it. And we also saw a few years ago the the Fitbits that everybody was wearing. Uh, somebody got into that database, it has location data, and <laughs> not just uh, our special forces and interesting people, but other nations uh, people were wearing them, and they were showing up at places that nobody really wanted to see on a map. So there's there's a lot of that, and I think you mentioned earlier there's a certain arrogance to the Russians, and you could you could see that the way Russians have referred to Ukrainians throughout time, uh, and you could see where that arrogance clicked in. And I wanted to ask you when we're looking at these attacks on infrastructure. This far into the war, you know, why use a cyber attack to take down an electrical grid when you can throw cruise missiles at it and, and perhaps do it uh, quicker and easier? But what have you seen in the West's civilian industries 
uh, and utilities, you know, whether you're talking about electrical train, when they're looking at what can no kidding happen in a conflict, that they're looking at their security, their robustness, their redundant systems, is there a, a little bit uh, of humility and maybe some panic uh, in the West with their larger companies and utilities that you've seen in response to the real world things that we've seen so far in the last 10 months? Well, you know, I wonder if it's the opposite, because for, there was a sense that Russia was a cyber superpower, that it was um, capable of shutting down the Ukrainian power grid. It had swayed the U.S. election. Um, you know, it was a it was prepositioning implants on the American electricity grid, which is the, which is which was the stories we we heard. Um, British politicians uh, talked about. Um, uh, I'm just looking. I'm just looking this up here, right? But it was you know politicians used to warn them how uh, Russia Russian cyber attacks could um, could could uh, you know 2018. Gavin Williamson, who was our former defense secretary, said that it could kill thousands of people. Uh, with a cyber attack by taking down the power grid, um, you know, damage its economy, rip its infrastructure apart, it said, causing chaos. That isn't necessarily wrong. I mean, no doubt that both the Russia and the United States were both searching for vulnerabilities inside the critical infrastructure of each other in order to be well positioned for a wartime situation in which they might need to use those implants, you know, because as we to come back to what we said earlier, Cyber attacks require reconnaissance in peacetime, and that reconnaissance looks a lot like the preparation for an attack. However, what the Ukraine war has shown us is that, yes, the cyber activity is going to be intense in a, in a kinetic conflict, but that the defense can win. The defense is capable of, um, of, 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 of prevailing with sufficient preparation, with enough international assistance, with enough collective action. Um, you know, and, 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 and all the preparatory steps like migrating your government servers abroad, um, dispersing your cyber operations, uh, all of those things. I think that we come out of this with a slight sense that the cyber offensive is not necessarily as all conquering and all pervasive as, as perhaps some people assume. In other words, you know, the, 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 the cyber attack will not always get through, to paraphrase Stanley Baldwin on the bomber in the, in, 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 in the interwar period. Well, the other uh, interesting aspect of this has been Elon Musk's Starlink system. Um, the Russians have been able, unable, apparently, to, to uh, affect any kind of uh, damage to that system, and it's allowing the Ukrainians to communicate pretty effectively. Uh, is that... Uh, is that your read on, or is, is there stuff I don't know because I haven't been keeping uh, intimate track of Starlink? No, no, that's my that's my read on it. That's my read on it too. That's my read on it too. You know, I mean, they they lost via they they couldn't use Viasat initially. At which point we saw the minister for digital infrastructure in Ukraine tweet at Elon Musk. Uh, they had thousands upon thousands of Starlink terminals go into the country. I think twenty five thousand is the last official kind of official looking number I saw. Uh, in fact, we have a piece coming out of this. This will be the uh, a story in the first issue of the new year for The Economist on, on Starlink. So if you want to learn more about that, then do pick up a copy uh, in, a, in, a, in a couple of weeks' time. Um, but, but Starlink has been a game changer for them because, you know, it's much harder to jam. It's much harder to jam. Electronic warfare equipment is optimized for, you know, high-frequency radios, combat net radios. It isn't designed for the very small, very narrow beams of Starlink. And these kind of 
individual mobile satcom systems, which are, you know, have tiny, tiny terminals, small enough that you can slap them on a naval drone, as we saw in the recent attack in Sebastopol, or small enough that you can stick them onto a, uh, onto a sort of small attack drone uh, and get comms that you would never have been able to get 20 years ago in that way. Um, and whilst the Russians have tried to take this down, we've seen Elon Musk tweeting about cyber attacks on, on Starlink ground terminals. There is my sense from talking to you from, from our conversations and my colleagues' conversations with Ukrainian officials is that um, they have not succeeded in being able to tear down Ukrainian use of that. And to some degree, actually, if you're sitting there in, you know, let's say Kherson or in Kharkiv and you're using Starlink to communicate as a, as a, as a frontline unit, you are blending into the noise. A, a military radio system stands out. You know, the emissions stand out. They, they mark you out. Whereas if you're using Starlink to connect to the Internet and you're basically then communicating as the Ukrainians do via signal uh, and other apps, um, you know, that's um, that's much, much, much more difficult to identify and deny. Yeah, I like the whole concept and the understanding of the the constant interplay between the offense and the defense, the capability, the counter capability, that there's no static uh situation, smart people, highly motivated, are going to find ways, and there's always an iterative tit and tat. And I really liked um, your quote from Stanley Baldwin from 1932, where um, basically he said, regardless of what anybody may tell you, the bomber will always get through this assumption that this new capability, it's uh, going to make war new again, as we, as we hear all the time. And you know, before the Russia-Ukrainian war especially, and I know science fiction writers will be damaged most by this conversation, but that's okay. <laughs> you get the impression that, that cyber in many ways was overhyped because just like the bombers were in the 20s and the 30s, it had never really been challenged. It had never really been proven for that matter or was in a hostile situation where for every effort there could be a counter effort, for every offensive there could be a, a defensive. And when you look at as the domain, as the supported versus the supporting concept, what are those things that um, in January of 2022, you really thought you would have seen in the cyber realm after 10 months uh, in that war that, that haven't come out? And how does that differential between what people thought would be and what it actually is, do you think that the, the Western militaries in their efforts and their funders are going to respond, and they've already responded in a timely manner to that, or do you think it's going to take a, a while longer for it to sink in about the, the theory of what cyber could be vice what we actually see as a practical action? Yes, this is a great question. I don't think I have a brilliant answer to it, but I want to just give you a flavor of uh, uh, competing views. Um, I, uh, there's a, there was a piece by a NATO, NATO's top intelligence official, David Cattler, who wrote, Russia is almost certainly capable of cyber attacks of greater scale and consequence than events in Ukraine would have one believe. And there was another piece more recently by Marcus Willett, who was the first director of cyber for GCHQ in this country. And he wrote, the war has not yet involved both sides using top-end offensive cyber capabilities against each other. Now, if that is true, 
we should be quite cautious as we have this conversation about saying that cyber is overhyped uh, because we may not have seen the end of it. We may not have seen the full piece of it. Um, there is the opposing view that I also cited by Kieran Martin, who is the founding director of the National Cybersecurity Center in the UK, our, our defensive cybersecurity agency, who said, look, Stuxnet um, uh, was basically um, you know, the equivalent to the moon landing of offensive cyber. In other words, it was an exquisite one-off attack that only the Americans and their superpower resources could have executed. And we confuse that with being a kind of routine thing that we would come to see. If you ask me, the jury is out. The jury is out. You know, we have so many entangled factors here. Russia's inexperience in military cyber operations, the hubris that we talked about of its early cyber, cyber effort, the incredible defensive effort that's been mounted in service of Ukraine. Um, and then on top of that, the sense that we may not yet have seen the top end cyber capabilities uh, for, for whatever reason, you know, for, for whatever reason that is, maybe fear of escalation. And it's a dynamic campaign. It is a dynamic campaign. To give you an example of that, I would say that look at the uh, example of ransomware that hit Eastern Europe and Poland in September or so called Prestige. And that was um, ransomware directed at transport and logistics in Poland, which, of course, as we know, is an absolutely vital hub for arms supplies into Ukraine. And the reason I point that out is to say that, look, I told you earlier, the Russians are being very careful about escalation with NATO, but there's indications that that, that is also gradually changing and that could change further. So I guess, I guess the point of everything I'm saying is that keep an open mind because we don't know, you know exactly why we have seen what we have seen. All of these different factors are going into it. And it could well be that you, know, you get the next war in, in five years' time. And the PLA cyber campaign against Taiwan looks wildly and completely different to the one that we see we see here. Um, you know, something that, that Daniel Moore, who's a great cyber analyst um, uh, and who's written a recent book on offensive cyber operations, cyber operations has talked about recently. So keep an open mind about about what we you know what we don't yet know. Yeah, one of the concerns we we talked about in a recent show with the undersea cables, so much of which carry. Uh, internet activity and and put you know, some of these uh, are the concern is that some countries, particularly China, who uh, have one of the at least one of the entry ways through which the the uh, internet stuff travels uh, are you know is is peeking at all our mail the things gentlemen aren't supposed to do according to one of our former secretaries of state. Um, you know, how big a concern? I mean, we've got all these agencies now looking for intrusions and in systems, and yet things like these ransomware attacks and stuff persist. How, you know, is it, and I think you said, you know, it's really hard to have a massive thing without a lot of work, a massive attack without a lot of, of hard work over a long time. But uh, can we be nibbled to death by ducks with some of these smaller attacks? And, and how big a threat is China control of some of these these uh, ports through which we pass information? Yeah, I mean, I think I think the cable issue has become much more prominent because of the explosions that occurred at the Nord Stream 1 and 2 pipelines a couple of months ago. And Russia has, as you know, you guys know better than I do, dedicated considerable resources to building up uh, capabilities to um, uh, 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 manipulate and affect uh, and up to disrupt undersea cables. 
um, notably Googie, the, the uh, Googie um, arm of the defense ministry, a very specialist division of their naval forces capable of deep sea a deep sea uh, activity, and we know that you know the submarine Belgorod is the most is the most uh, prominent example of their of their systems. But we saw a fire, you know, a fire aboard the Losharik a few a, few, a couple of years ago, which was another Googie capability. Um, and you know, we are vulnerable. I think we have considerable resilience and redundancy across the big connections, you know, transatlantic internet connections, uh, which are disrupted from time to time and, and and can come back onto stream pretty quickly. But when you begin looking at more kind of uh, areas with, which have fewer connections, fewer points of connection, uh, you know, and I'm thinking of places like Svalbard or, you know, uh, uh, outlying sensitive islands, then yes, the cable issue is much more uh, is much more sensitive. Could the Russians bleed us in this way in a, over a prolonged period? I don't think so. I think this is more of a kind of shock capability designed to cause uncertainty and disruption for a relatively limited period at the outset of a crisis or a campaign. I don't think it's a kind of bleed you dry blockage type capability that can be effected and prolonged over a number of months. Uh, but along with satellites, cables, pipelines, um, I would include all of those things as vulnerable bits of infrastructure. Ports, I think, are kind of more interesting because, you know, if you're in a serious campaign, your critical ports in Europe are going to be hit by kinetic missiles. Forget about the cyber attacks. You know, this is, this is, these are going to be military targets. Much more interesting, I think, is the question of what Chinese ownership of European ports allows them to do. And I think one of the things that it allows them to do is have additional visibility into the movement of shipping and, and including military traffic. Uh, and to give you one example of that, I could point to the port of Alexandroupolis in Greece, where, you know, it's been up to sale. One of the bidders uh, is uh, linked to Gazprom, uh, the Russian state-owned gas company. And this port has been a vital hub for NATO arms supplies and U.S. arms supplies up to Ukraine. So you can immediately see the kind of vulnerabilities that this creates. This summer we had um, a show where we talked just about what you mentioned about the European ports. Uh, for the listeners, if you haven't had a chance, uh, one, of the, one of the most frightening charts you can look at right now is the Chinese ownership of major European ports, because that ownership and that presence also gives you the ability, uh, if especially because everything in the Chinese commercial sector is tied into the Chinese Communist Party, and if they make a decision they want to go, they have a long time to put into place what, I mean, let's, let's be honest, what we would do if we were going to go to war with the People's Republic of China, and we had our companies with our players in their uh, locations, uh, things that we would do before that war. That's 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 a very very scary thing. Um, again, about to bounce into that hole. <laughs> we could do another hour just on that. I wanted to go back to uh, again. We're we're all um, dealing with the subjects of, of King Charles in the United Kingdom, but. I'd also recommend to my listeners, I want to bounce something off of you because we've, we've used the word hubris a few times, arrogance, how people on the outside are trying to adjust to what they're seeing uh, in Ukraine, but the Ukrainians don't have that luxury. And the um, World United Services Institute for Defense and Security Studies this summer, they did a real nice, and I put a link in the, in the chat room uh, earlier on in the show for people to look at. They don't really... They mentioned cyber a few times, but they they discuss it 
And you have better visibility on this than I do. I don't know whether this is part of British doctrine or developing doctrine, where they they tied in and they describe how cyber and electronic warfare are being put together. And uh, on page 61, you know, one of those mentions they have is that the quote Ukrainian armed forces have formed a cyber and electromagnetic activities command, enabling the end-to-end management of capabilities development electronic payload preparation delivery, as well as force protection and direction finding with the three basic tasks of electronic warfare troops are reconnaissance, protection, and electronic attack. And I think in the cyber perspective, you've and we've talked about it here, that's that reconnaissance, seeing what's out there on your networks and on your opponent's networks, protection, the defense against those attacks, and also attack, finding ways that you can go in to their systems. Uh, do you see that as that, that fusion of those two warfare and domains? Because intellectually, they are very related. Entirely related, uh, intertwined completely. Uh, and that's why, for example, I think in the UK, um, we, we also use the acronym CEMA, CEMA, right? Cyber and electromagnetic activities, because we understand the intertwining of those two things. Um, and, 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 you know, you can divvy it up in different ways. The, the, the Russians see cyber principally as a branch of information warfare um, in which their intelligence services have a long history. Um, other countries view it more as a branch of, ele- of, of electromagnetic activity and electronic warfare. Um, but, of course, computer networks are a type of electromagnetic channel and domain, um, just one in which a different, uh, you know, a type of certain type of digital data flows. But there are certain ways they interact. I think for me, the most interesting uh, uh, um, um, interface between these two domains or these two subdomains is the question of when, when you have a military system that is uh, separated from the wider Internet. Um, you know, so, so it's not plugged into the Internet that you and I can access or that, you know, that, that you can get to from publicly available means. But it's, it's a system that has software. It runs software on it. Um, and, you know, has, has, has therefore runs code, executes code, but, but it also has some kind of electromagnetic um, uh, um, uh, uh, receiver, you know, an antenna, I say, an, an antenna that can take these things. Um, let's take the example of an air defense system. You know, you have your Russian, your Russian book sitting there in the field. Now, that's an example of where you may need to rely on traditional electronic warfare using, you know, radio, radio frequency emissions to um uh to 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 be able to affect the software that a system is running um now that is something that only very sophisticated cyber powers are capable of doing because you need you're talking about capabilities like uh you know in the US case the growler a very advanced electronic warfare warfare aircraft and we think of EW as stuff like you know or at least maybe people less versed in military affairs than, than you you and your listeners would think of electronic warfare as you know jamming spoofing all of these things but actually here we're talking about um potentially uh, t- uh, very sophisticated code based effects cyber effects delivered via traditional radio frequency electromagnetic means Oh, good. Something else to worry about. Um, we, we've taken up about an hour of your time, and it's been really interesting. I think we could go on for several hours more on this topic. Uh, but before we let you go, can uh, what are you working on? When we expect to see it? You've already told us about something we should be looking for in January, uh, so involving Starlink. So uh, what else is in the hopper for you? 
Well, we do pick up a copy of our issue this week on our interviews with Zelensky, Zaluzhny and Sersky on the way the war looks through the eyes of the Ukrainian high command. And we're certainly very worried that mobilization, Russian mobilization may have been um, uh, prematurely written off. So that's our current issue. In the first issue of the next year, you can hopefully find our piece on Starlink that will look at why Ukraine's use of Starlink um, is so significant and what it should tell the U.S., its allies, NATO friends, about the potential use of this big distributed low Earth orbit mega constellations for this kind of distributed SATCOM and why that's so imp- impressive and useful. Then beyond that, you know, we have a few things in the pipeline, but I'd certainly keep an eye out for pieces on military medicine. I certainly would like to write more about electronic warfare. I haven't done very much on that. So if you have any listeners who know a lot about electronic warfare and would like to educate me and, and set me straight, please, please get in touch and, and talk to me about this. If you if you have worked in this area and you have thoughts and reflections on what the Ukraine is doing well, what you know, what you're seeing out of this conflict. And um, beyond that, we will be looking to see how both sides come out of the wintertime preparing for the spring fighting that looms ahead. Absolutely, because the uh, Rasputinsky, what are they, what are they called, the deep mud in Ukraine? That's going to be firming well, up Rasputitsa, in the next few weeks. The Rasputitsa, yeah. Ah, the there we go. Well, um, Shashank, again, thank you very much for joining us today. And I appreciate everybody for joining us for another edition of MidRats. And until next time, we hope you have a great maybe day. Cheers. Yeah.